0: I got a warm-up question for you this morning. You know, in the, uh, in the early days of the church, uh, in the history, when the Jesus movement was just starting out, like in the book of Acts, nobody what, knew what to call it. You know, it's like, well, what's going on here? Because Jesus never talked about, like, a religion or something like that. Uh, but Jesus' followers had a, had a different manner of going through life. Uh, than other people did. And so uh, originally they took to calling it the way. It's like, what are you doing? Well, I'm just I'm, I'm following the way. Well, whose way? Jesus' way, you know, which is just such an interesting name. Uh, it was uh, really popular in the 70s to talk about the way. Um, so um, let me just ask you a question. Uh, for you veterans, uh, you people who have been following Jesus for a while now, what's one thing that you know about the way? The way of doing life with Jesus. What's one thing that you know about the way in the world? I'll give you eight seconds to think about it and be brilliant. Only. I'm sorry, what? It's the, it's the only way. Ah, it's the only way. Okay. So uh, it's worth finding out. What else? What it? This is the way. Yeah, you know, he's actually quoting scripture. He yeah, said, so this is the way walk walking it. It's... Uh, comes from uh isaiah yeah what's that it's counter-cultural. it's countercultural. so whatever culture you're from whatever place in the world uh you're steeped in uh this is different this is uh the jesus way is different all right what else you got he is the way, he is the way. there's a good christian answer and he is Truth. Truth and the life. i'm not just who who is he jesus. okay i just, i just, just all right yeah just just in case, I'm going to fill in the blanks there. What you got, John? It's not easy, but it's worth it. It's not easy, but it's worth it. The, the way it isn't easy. Uh, it's interesting because there's a corollary there. If your life is too easy, you're probably in trouble. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, it's Albert. Based faith, it's, it's based on faith, not, not proof. You might get some evidences, but you're, always, you're going to feel like you have to take leaps of faith if you're going to walk this path, that's interesting. You guys are brilliant. All right, a couple more. It must be continually practiced. It must be continually practiced. So that, that's interesting, like you can unpack that statement a lot. Uh, I think the, the real powerful word there is continually, right? Um, that you have to stick with it daily. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like uh, swimming up a river. If you take a pause, you don't stay still. <laughs> you just carry it away downstream. Uh, so you have to stick at it because the currents of the world go against you. That's, that's a really profound answer. All right, one more. Who's got it? Tell me about the way. What's the way? Timeless. It's timeless. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. So in the same way it's countercultural, it's, it's permanent any time, any era, and uh, going to last forever. There, uh, as the Old Testament prophet says, there's no shadow of turning in God. There is no changing in him. Uh, same yesterday, today, and forever. So something that you can count on going forward at the very least. All right, the way. Uh, one of the things that I've learned to appreciate about the way is that in all areas of life, there's usually a little way in them. You know, like whatever you're doing, uh, you can kind of, you know, look at the what would Jesus do bracelet, right? It's sort of, it informs uh, just a, a bunch of different areas of life. Well, because the world informs a lot of different areas of your life, and culture informs a lot of different areas of your life. And if you're going to be otherworldly and countercultural, then the way has to inform a lot of different areas uh, of your life. We're in this sermon series uh, called, um, Not Poetically, uh, There Is a God and His Ways Are Smart. And uh, we've looked at reasons to believe in God over the last few weeks, and I think, you know, we've done. Uh, uh, a decent job on that sort of to get you uh, confident in faith and confident in the answers that are inherent in, in, in following God and following uh, after Jesus. And part of this series is that uh, we want to go through uh, his ways. We want to take a look at the big moral questions or you know, the big controversial questions in culture and just kind of look at them in light of the way if God's ways are smart, what's something smart that God says about this? What's something smart that God says uh, about that? Uh, And I wanted to kick that off uh, today by talking about what God says about uh, money or our money matters, uh, because money is one of those things that we all deal with, whether we have a lot of it or very little of it. And, uh, And most of us at this point know that money can be Uh, dangerous. Everybody quotes that phrase from the Bible. Money is the root of all evil. Actually, it's uh, the desire of money is the root of all evil. But even the non-believers know that one. Money can get screwy on you really fast, Uh, whether you're rich or poor. Money kills you via anxiety. And what I'm really talking about, what we appreciate, is that money kills your soul, right? It chokes the spiritual life out of you. Uh, through anxiety or worry. Um, I think uh, money conditions some of the other things that condition us. Like money really uh, conditions our political conversation, our cultural conversations. All politics and all cultures uh, have money matters interwoven in them. Uh, and, And that just sort of amplifies the controversies and the dangers Uh, in my opinion, and money often characterizes our relationships, the way we relate to people, who we'll relate to, uh, who we won't in some instances. And your money story counts for a lot in your life of faith, which is to say, if you're going to live by faith, as Albert pointed out, one of the ways in which you will be exercising faith, continually practicing faith, um, is um, is in the area of, of money. Um, and some of you have a choice in that regard, and some of you not so much. Some of you have to practice faith, uh, in, in your money life. Um, I, uh, I started out in life a, a little bit rough, um, and I, I feel like as a result, I always had an interesting relationship with money. Um, I share bits and pieces of this story frequently, so some of you know it, but, um, I was born to, uh, uh, sort of hippie parents, um, during uh, the very late 60s, and um, their marriage lasted about two weeks after I was born, and it was my mom that took off. They were sort of steeped in the drug culture and stuff. And uh, that started a a chain of events that ended in a weird custody battle. My mother won custody, even though I uh, had never spent any time with her. And my dad had to kidnap me, essentially. Uh, And we ran around the country uh, for a bunch of years, most of my... Uh, childhood uh, hiding from the cops and living under assumed names and uh, sort of living on the margin of societies where my father couldn't use an, uh, his ID and, and just lots of miracle stories about how we scraped by, had enough uh, food, and most of the time had a place to live. Um, and God provided, uh, even though um, my family was not church-going, uh, was not, churchgoing, uh, was not uh, believing uh, at that time, I had some Christian babysitters along the way uh, that took me in and gave me shelter for a while, which is how I, I came uh, to the Lord when I was really tiny. Of these Christian babysitters who were just good people who decided to help out a family in, in need, uh, in, in big trouble. And they ended up just being hugely, hugely influential in my life. Those babysitters are the reason, uh, indirectly, that you are all here this morning. Because uh, if they had not taken me in, uh, Blue Water wouldn't exist. Um, you're like, yeah, well, um. <laughs> but some of us think that's a big deal. You never know. Babysitting is what I'm saying, people. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's powerful, powerful stuff. Um, so anyway, so uh, you know, eventually my family got to be uh, at least you know like working class, a little better off. I went away to college, and the deal. Um, in my family was that, you know, once you left home, man, you left home. For my 18th birthday, I got a little uh, suitcase, <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> it was like, oh, you're off, you're going to college. I went to a pretty big college, fairly elite college, actually, and I remember showing up uh, my first day on campus. You had to, back in those days, you actually had to go in person to pay your bill, and you had to write this thing called a check. Look it up on, online, kids. Uh, <laughs> So I remember going to the office of the birth of the registrar, and writing a cheque. Uh, and I forget what the cheque was for, it was like for $2,400 or something. Um, I had gotten a financial aid package based on my family's income, but my family was not supporting me. Um, uh, but it wasn't as much as it, as it should have been, but still, you know, it was like $2,400. And I had $600 in my bank account at the time, and I remember writing the cheque putting it down, and said, I'm going to college, dang it. Somehow. Uh, And then uh, uh, I tithed the money that I had. Um, uh, And then uh, on Monday, this mysterious check showed up at the bursar's office. I had a friend who worked in financial aid, another student, who called me and said, you just got a check in the mail. It's written out to you. Do you know who it's from? And I said, no, but I'll be there in three minutes. (laughs) went down and got it and paid my first quarter's bill that I had no idea where that check came from to this day. Um, And so on and so forth. That's kind of how I got through college. And this was the Lord just kind of, I mean, there was no way I would have walked my path through life without that sort of faith. But when you have nothing, sometimes faith is easier, right? You just kind of, you just kind of keep going. Uh, One story I like to tell about provision is, um, Sony and I met at that college, and then I went on to grad school, and then I did a postdoc, uh, and um, we were in Boston, and, and then through very supernatural ways got a call to come uh, back to Hawaii. Uh, we were pregnant with our oldest daughter, Jojo, at the time, and uh, we had decided to move back. I was going to take a job at a church, uh, but we had no money to make the move. Um, but. Uh, you know, we were just moving forward as if we could get here. And then one night, um, we went to a, a seat, an album release party for a friend of ours who was a musician. And I had sort of helped out on his album. I'll produce it back when I was musical. And uh, Sony had sung on it, I think. Um, and so uh, we went to this party. And then after the party, we went to a New Jersey diner. And uh, we drove there in our car. And I remember Sonia and Jojo and her belly had just stepped away from the passenger side door when this Greek guy uh, in the neighborhood, he was this 92-year-old Greek man. I don't know why I remember that he was Greek, but he was. He came screaming across the parking lot. He had mistaken at age 92 his accelerator for his brake. And just like high speeds, bash right into the passenger door. And Sonia had just stepped away from it. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw him coming. And in the back of the car, we had my dog, Rocky, who went with us everywhere in the hatchback. And I remember diving in the car and, and uh, curling my body around Rocky, because I'm a good Christian that way. <laughs> and uh, the only injury was that I got a little, I had uh, gashed my eyebrow, but it was no big deal. And Rocky was fine. <laughs> and JoJo was fine. And, um, but anyway, the insurance company totaled our car, and that's how we got to Hawaii. Uh, and this, uh, this church would not exist, probably, without that 92-year-old Greek man smashing into our car. Um, and then when we got to Hawaii, we didn't have a car for a while, but eventually uh, somebody gave us a car. I think, I think we were gifted two cars eventually. Anyway, life is like that, you know, it's like you walk the path, uh, you find the way and walk in it, uh, as Craig was quoting, and the Lord provides. Do you all know that? Right? Do you know that? Because if you know it, you still have to walk it, and you have to walk it continually, and you have to practice it and, and that's really how you get money freedom uh, in this world, and that's Jesus' goal for us. And if you are a veteran Jesus follower, you probably have some experiences like this. You probably know about this. But I would like to read today what is probably Jesus' most famous teaching on money, and then we'll talk a little bit about being money-free and, and having a healthy money culture because the reason we're doing this sermon series, as I have explained in previous weeks, is that I've just seen so many hundreds of Christians taken out by the recent crises in our society. you know, the shutdown crises and how that just took people out of churches. Church population in America has gone down, like by almost half since the COVID shutdowns began. Um, churches are just devastated. And during that time, we also had political upheavals, right? All this political controversy. Some of it related to money. A lot of it related to justice, which has to do with money, right? Um, and we had all of these, you know, these cultural, moral controversies. And Christians are just getting killed left and right, by which I mean they're getting soul-killed left and right uh, and if you are going to make it, and if you are going to be a vessel of salvation for others who need to make it, then you got to get money right. You have to have a healthy relationship with it. Otherwise, you're just so vulnerable to whatever the world does. Right? You're just so vulnerable. So vulnerable to anxiety. So vulnerable to political issues, so vulnerable to cultural, social issues. And so I want you to have a healthy money culture so that you make it. And then if we have a healthy money culture, if we are a place of provision and freedom as we should be, then people who walk in to our community from whatever direction, then they're likely to make it as well. Is money really that dangerous though? You know, is it really that de- deadly? Well, here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which is his most famous teaching. This is a teaching that he gives sort of toward the beginning of his ministry, and it is probably, no probably, it is definitely without a doubt the most famous and influential moral teaching in human history. There is there's no second place, you know. Uh, it's just, this is just the teaching uh, of all teachings. And uh, it's in Matthew uh, 5, 6, and 7 is at least the fullest version of it. It appears in other Gospels as well in more uh, limited fashion. But I'm going to read Matthew 6, uh, verses 24 through 34, and this is Jesus teaching on money. Uh, He teaches on money elsewhere in the chapter, but this is the most famous bit. No one can serve two masters... Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Period. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body. What he's doing here is he's telling you how not to serve money. Right? Don't worry. Uh, about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body what you will wear is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes look at the birds of the air they do not sow or reap or store away in barns and let your heavenly father feeds them it's such a lovely prosaic teaching that the whole world knows this teaching right the whole world knows it consider the lilies of the field everybody knows this Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns that your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, he diagnoses it as a faith problem, so do not worry, he says yet again. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear Or how shall we pay rent? Or what shall we drive? For the pagans run after all these things. Uh, That's a word that means the unbelievers run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Another famous line here. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given you as well. First things first. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day is enough trouble of its own. So there's a lot there. You could probably turn that into, you know, five or six different teachings if you were to seize on one or two verses at a time. But here are some observations that I have about this uh, very famous passage, and I offer them to you today in the spirit of creating money freedom and a healthy money culture. Number one, it freaks me out That God boils it all down to God versus money. That Jesus boils it all down to God versus money. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and... What should he say there? He should say... This is what he should say. He should say you cannot serve both God and sin. Or, you cannot serve both God and Satan. That would make a little bit of sense. Or maybe, if you're going to get really radical, you cannot serve both God and the world. You could understand him saying that. But he says none of those things. When it comes to defining the main opposition in life, Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. Which is a little bit surprising that he should tell us that money is really kind of the main opposer uh, to God, right? You cannot serve both God and money. And then he goes on to do it. I, I'm a Bible geek, so I actually counted this. He talks about money issues more than any other issue in all of the Gospels. Uh, I counted. He teaches about love 15 times, 1-5. He teaches about money and money matters 62 times. So by a margin of four to one, he teaches about money more than love. Does that mean that money is more important than love? No. What it means is this. Money is how the world gets us more often than not. Money is how the world gets us more often than not. Money makes the world go round. I think most human beings are money-sick, but they don't realize it. I think most people make money Lord in their lives without even realizing that they're making money Lord in their lives. For instance, you could be a really dedicated Christian, you could have a fruitful ministry in a community, but if your boss gives you a job transfer and a raise, that means you need to move away to the mainland or something like that, most people wouldn't even think twice because it is responsible to take the pay raise, right? right? You live where you live, many, many of us, because of the job that you have, because that's how you pay your bills. Now, is that a necessity? Or is that making money in charge? Right? How in charge is money in your life? And, you know, I'm making simple of what is often a complicated situation. But I think that money has a grip on the shape of our lives. And most of us wouldn't even question it. We kind of regret it and we kind of shrug. But it's like, yeah, well, that's the way that it is. But Jesus is so radical. He's like, don't even worry about how you're going to have money for food. Is that a responsible teaching? Is that what you teach your kids? Is that what you want your babysitters teaching your kids? Because there's some radical people in the room. I'm going to babysit your kid. Uh, so that's hugely challenging, right? Should money really shape your life to the degree that it does? And you, know, and you guys are sort of spiritually mature relative to the average world population, but you know, it's clear that around the world, most people do let money shape their lives, whether they're rich or whether they're poor. Mostly what Jesus says about money is, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Uh, which is all well and good for him because he was a beggar traveling around the countryside with nothing. Wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, he begged for a living at this stage of his life. Formerly, he was some sort of day laborer, a tekton, often translated as uh, carpenter, but really it just means generic builder. Um, yeah, he didn't have much. So it was interesting to hear him say, yeah, don't worry, don't worry. It'll show up. Uh, what you need uh, will show up. Don't worry. What's the opposite of worry? Faith is the opposite of worry. So basically the point that Jesus is trying to get across to us is that you have to have money faith. You have to have money faith. Um, one, of the, one of the reasons I love uh, that Jesus did so many supernatural things, so many miracles and commanded us to do them as well is because it stands to reason that if I can heal somebody from cancer, I probably shouldn't worry about my bills. Right? Because miraculous is miraculous. Uh, But, you know, sometimes I'll walk into a healing service full of confidence but look at my checkbook with despair, (laughs) uh, which makes no sense. But there is such an unhealthy money culture, a money lordship, Uh, in our life, that Jesus has to say this a lot, literally dozens of times in the gospel. He's like, yeah, don't worry about money. And then he gives a a corollary to it. Uh, He says, "Uh, prioritize kingdom stuff today rather than prioritizing money security for tomorrow. Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added uh, unto you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. You know, today has the troubles that you need to address. What is he saying there? Well, generally what he's saying there is, look, life is ministry. And that's got to be your priority. How much brain space do you give to material security in the future? And, you know, that's a detailed conversation. You should be like, well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of economically healthy to to uh, buy a house and have equity in a property, and then you have something for retirement and something to leave for your kids and stuff like that? Is that an evil way to think? Well, if it gets in the way of anything, yes. And it's always something that we need to be balancing. Always something that we, if if we have enough money to even be thinking uh, like that prioritize kingdom stuff today, but do we have enough money? And here's the thing that bugs me most about this passage. This just, just really twists my guts and knots. Uh, if you read the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it is explained to you that Jesus is talking to an extremely poor crowd of people. It says that all the sick and the lame, and the demonized and the poor came not only from uh, Judea and the areas of Jerusalem, but from other countries as well. These are basically all the people who live out in the sticks. And, you know, it's clear that a lot of them are sick, a lot of them are lame, which means in that culture, there's no welfare program. It means they were all scraping by. There were people there in that crowd, lots of them probably hundreds of them who were very seriously worrying about starvation for themselves and their family. And Jesus is like, don't worry. Don't worry. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Which makes his message sound even more revolutionary. If you talk about this passage to an American crowd, they're like, yes, don't trust money. But this crowd would have been like, we have no money to trust in. And Jesus is saying, then trust in God and trust in God. How many of you have ever been on the brink of starvation? How many of you have ever been homeless for any length of your time? Maybe a handful of us, yeah. Uh, We live in an incredibly wealthy society, but in this society, that would have been far more normal to go through something like that. Jesus preached a healthy money culture for everyone, as if he believed that it was the key for everyone, rich, poor, and everybody in between. No exemptions. No exemptions. Don't worry. Because as soon as you worry, you compromise your faith. And as soon as you lose faith, it's very hard for God to do stuff uh, for you. It's very hard for him to send a Greek man to destroy your car. Uh, Right? If you're just going to freak out about it. Uh, It's very hard. Well, yeah, I could go on. You get the point. I'm talking about Jesus' teaching in the Gospels and I'm talking about you know, other teachings that he has in the Gospels. But really, you, know, you, find this, you find this all over Scripture. In Matthew 25, Jesus basically says, it's the passage where he says, look, if you visit someone in prison who's oppressed and locked up, you visit me. If you give a gift to a poor person, you give a gift to me. If you fail to do that, I don't care how many miracles you do, you get cast into outer darkness. You know, Jesus cares very deeply about sharing, sharing, and particularly sharing with those uh, in need. One of my favorite uh, chapters in the Old Testament is Isaiah 58, and this is uh, God through the prophet Isaiah indicting the people of Israel uh, who had become uh, a little bit rich during this season, although things were about to get very tough for them. Uh, and they had forgotten to care for those in need. They were fasting and observing rituals, but they weren't sharing what they had. They weren't free. They weren't free with the little or the lot that they had. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? Is this, a, this is the sort of religious observance I want, God says, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Do that, and then your light will break forth like the dawn. Then you'll be the light of the world, and your healing will quickly appear. Then the supernatural stuff will flow, and your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer." and you will cry for help, and you will say, here I am, get this right. Be a sharing, generous, money-free community. It affects so much, God is saying. If you do away with the yoke of oppression and with the pointing finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, your light will rise in the darkness. I like that last bit. Uh, because this passage kind of makes you think of social justice we argued so much about social justice in the world over the past few years didn't we in this country uh, particularly anyway and god is saying yes care about providing for the poor care about providing with the oppressed but if you just point your finger at one another and talk maliciously and angrily then it ain't gonna work And what grieved me most about this season that we've been in the past few years is that there was a lot of finger-pointing. There was a huge amount of judgment. And if your compassion for the poor makes you a judgmental person, shut up. That is entirely non-Christian. Entirely non-Christian. And incredibly harmful and deathly. And it has ended up killing a lot of souls. And God points this out. Don't do that, man. There's no grace in it. And isn't sharing about grace and generosity? Right? And then he says, if you spend yourselves in the behalf of the hungry, don't say this person or that person isn't sharing enough. No, just, just share yourself. Give away your money. Give away your time. Give away your labor. Don't demand that other people do it. That's not, that's not where your authority lies. You know? So there's a lot of cultural coaching here uh, as well. Politics messes things up. Um, what's the best way to do social justice? Free markets? Socialism? Give us the options. Um, everybody has um, their opinion about what the best distribution system is, right? And uh, what the best way to institute generosity in in a society or even in a church uh, for that matter. Um, And uh, some people get radical one way or, uh, or the other. And you know, I'm a political science scientist by training. I read a lot of history. My master's was in economic development. I have a lot of opinions about this stuff, uh, because you know, historically, I can you can measure what works and what doesn't work in terms of bringing people uh, out of poverty. But you know, a system that was really, really radical—God's socioeconomic system, as defined in the Old Testament. Do you guys know about this? Yeah. Jubilee. There you go. And so, you know, God coached his people how in ways, in the way, in the way, the way to be money-free and generous and sharing. Right? And and you know, there were different planks to his system. One plank was the Sabbath. It's like, look, you might want to work seven days a week to get it. Don't do that. Don't do that. You take take seriously, take a, a, a day off every week. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You're going to have to do that. And then every seventh year was a Sabbath year. Right? So this was an agrarian society. So every seventh year, God coached his people to, to basically take a year off. Every seventh year. Not even the French do that. And, uh, and let, the, let the fields lie fallow. Nobody understood then about soil depletion and stuff like that. But, you know, it was, a, it was like I said. Last week, the Bible is incredibly smart. Uh, and what you would do is that over the course of the previous six years, you would save up a little bit. You'd have some grain in the storehouse, and then, then you just had to worry about surviving for a, for a seventh year. And, and, and that would sort of rejuvenate uh, society a little bit was, was the idea. Now, economically, it didn't necessarily work out for everyone. So there was a sort of system of social welfare in ancient Israel, Old Testament times. And it was, it was, well, basically it was slavery. It was, uh, well, not slavery in the way that you might think of it. It was indentureship. So if I uh, came into big debt, I could basically sell my labor to you. I could sort of just give myself over to you for a specific number of years. And to sort of, and then you would pay my way. right? You were obligated to take care of me. And me and my family were obligated to serve you. And that's what the Bible calls slavery. But it was sort of a social indentureship. And then at the end of a certain specified number of years, you'd be like, okay, that was enough. Although on occasion, if I liked you so much that I just wanted to keep serving you and your clan, then there was a ceremony for me to become part of it. So it was an interesting sort of slavery. It was really based on social Uh, relationships and obligations, but it was so that everybody got taken care of. And there were specific laws like that for widows and children, like, you know, the closest kin would be obligated to marry that woman, the widow, into their family and stuff like that. But it was all kind of based on sharing and, well, ownership in a way, in a way. But every 50th year, all of those indentureships were canceled. That was the year of Jubilee, that you heard some people shout out. and the year of Jubilee, all debts, all remaining debts were completely canceled. Everything was written off. If you had taken somebody's land because they got into debt with you, you would give them back their land. You would restore everything to, their, to the, the former clanship ownership, which you could do in an agrarian society. It would be a little harder for us today to pull something like that. Do you like that economic system? How many of you would do that? Would you you go for that? People are like, well, credit card debt versus car ownership. Um, Yeah, it was a system of reset. It It was a combination of grim reality, debted indenture, but grace, right? Regular reset and generosity. You know that the Israelites never once did a year of Jubilee. Never once. And it was for that reason, their inability to keep the Sabbath, that God judged them and sent them into exile. That was God's stated reason uh, for the trouble that they had in Babylon and stuff like that. So, all sorts of radical systems. My favorite Old Testament practice for generosity was the practice called gleanings. Do you guys know this? So, if you had land and you would harvest your fields once a year, sometimes twice a year, depending on your crop. When you harvested a field in ancient Israel, you were required to leave a little bit of grain on the edges. You weren't allowed to harvest your whole field. And then what would happen is that people who had fallen on hard times would come into your field and they would harvest the edges. You were always leaving a little margin for the poor you were always leaving a margin for sharing in your life. And I just think that's such a great practice for us Christians. Always have a margin of sharing in your life if you have enough. No, always continually practice as we heard earlier. Even if you don't have enough, you have to share what you have. Jesus made that very clear in the miracle story of the loaves and fishes. Because in the kingdom of heaven, whatever you have ends up being enough, even if God has to multiply things supernaturally. Always have a margin for sharing in your life. I just wanted to share those encouragements today. I've given no fancy teachings, but just to make clear that, uh, that money is how the world usually gets us. And it happens so well that we usually don't even recognize when it's working that way. That's how much saturation money culture has in our existence. And so if you are going to live free of money anxiety, free of money influence, you have to be a true radical. You have to be a true radical. Now, maybe we don't have to do like, take the seventh year off and do the 50th year of Jubilee, that sort of thing. I don't know, I mean, maybe you do. I had a Christian mentor who used to say, at least once in his life, every Christian should give away everything he has, Um, which is easier when you have little, I can tell you uh, from experience. But my goal for you is, is that you not be taken out by money anxiety, by money politics and judgmentalism. Yeah. And that uh, you have a healthy money culture based on sharing and generosity. And if you can pull that off in whatever fashion, you'll probably make it. And if we can pull that off, if we a Blue Water Mission live free of money fear, If we manage to stay fear of the political judgmentalism that is coming in the next political season, you think the last one was bad, people. This upcoming one is going to be a trendsetter, off the charts. But if we can stay free of political judgmentalism, and if we develop a culture of mutual sharing and support one with another, right down to babysitting then our light will shine in the darkness. It will break forth like the dawn. We will be the most influential force in a sick culture because money makes the world go round, which means we can stop the whole world, the whole world, if we just have a faith-based relationship with money there is very little more otherworldly that you can do than to be anxiety-free and ridiculously generous.